Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here. This is Bloodlines here on Eurofolk Radio. Today is the last Sunday of October 2022. That's 10.30, I guess. Oh, tomorrow is Halloween. <laughs> that makes today Halloween-een. Evening of Halloween. So, uh, don't forget to bless all those... Uh, Demonics entities that come out on Halloween and, uh, Beltrain and, uh, all the different names the pagans have for it. Yeah, that's a great song. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, of course, uh, you know, just a theme song for Bloodlines. And, uh, we're going to be continuing with the Nameless War. And, uh, Sussex Man also has it on newensign.com. If, uh, if you want to put the link in for the readers or listeners, that they can pick that up from your website as well. Okay, so here we go. This is Chapter 6 of The Nameless War by Archibald. Oh, what's his last name? There are too many Archibalds. <laughs> and I don't want to scroll up to... Uh, uh, anyway, somebody in the chat room will... Remind me of his name. Anyway, chapter 6, 1933. Jewry declares war on Germany. Oh, actually, economic war. It's not physical war. They, they never declare physical war. They just invade. And But they declared economic war against Germany in 1933. And the text starts out by saying, the, uh, the English edition of Mein Kampf was still in the process of printing and publication when Jewry declared war on the National Socialist regime and started an intensive blockade against Germany. The International Jewish Boycott Conference was assembled in Holland in the summer of 1933 under the presidency of Mr. Samuel Untermeyer of the USA, who was elected president of the World Jewish Economic Federation, formed to combat the opposition to Jews in Germany. On his return to the USA, Mr. Untermeyer gave an address over station WABC, the text of which, as printed in the New York Times of August 7, 1933, I have before me. Mr. Untermeyer referred in the opening phrases to, quote, the holy war in the cause of humanity in which we are embarked, unquote, and the proceed, ah, racial holy war, and proceeded to develop the subject at great length describing the Jews as the aristocrats of the world, quote, each of you, Jew and Gentile alike, who has not already enlisted in this sacred war should do so now and here, unquote. Those Jews who did not join in, he denounced, declaring, quote, they are traitors to their race, unquote. So it is a racial holy war, according to the Jews, anyway. So, and, and uh, just a uh, as a reminder, I forgot, uh, Michael uh, is not with us today. He's off gallivanting. Yeah, thank you, Ramsey, Archibald Ramsey. And uh, Michael is off gallivanting, hunting moose again this week. <laughs> he did bag a moose last time and, uh, uh, and skinned it and uh, cut it up and ate some of it and gave uh, some of it to his friends. So he's having too much fun, folks, way too much fun. But uh, better stock up, folks, because the, the great starvation has begun. The Rothschilds and the World Economic Forum 
destroying uh, meat processing plants, burning fields, and they're doing everything they possibly can to, and of course, with the energy reduction, thanks to blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline and other acts of sabotage to world energy uh, sources, like uh, blowing up petroleum refineries, okay, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to harvest food if they don't have gasoline for the tractors. So that's what they're doing, folks. It's the great starvation has begun. And so Michael uh, won't starve as long as he bags a moose or two every so often. And we're going to have to do the same. We're going to have to prepare for the worst. So let's continue. So Archibald Ramsay, The Nameless War, a fantastic book explaining how the Jews have masterminded virtually every communist-style revolution in history, starting with the Great Revolution in England, uh, way back to install Cromwell as the leader of England. Uh, They chopped off Charles I's head and then installed Charles II, who was responsible for creating the Bank of England. Okay, so this is how the Jews got their dirty, filthy mitts into the British society in those days. And then they've been on a rampage, that is, the international Jew has been on a rampage against white civilization ever since. This book just details the entire operation. And let's continue here. So we can see here that Samuel Untermeyer, who was responsible for financing and promoting C.I. Schofield and creating the the Schofield Reference Bible put out by Oxford University, even though it was, the work was done here in America by C.I. Schofield, that Oxford University Press has continued to install notes in, in that Bible which totally contradict what actually the Bible actually says. So, and of course this Bible is being used by various theological seminaries, including Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas. By the way, I was in Dallas last weekend, and I almost, I was tempted to sabotage the building there. I drove right by it. So, but I didn't, I didn't have time, and I didn't have any plans to do that, but I know where the place is now. Anyway, let's get back to this. And, oh, by the way, uh, let me just quickly, we had a great rally that Saturday, last weekend on Saturday, at the Aryan Freedom Network, and their website is white-power.org, white-power.org, and they should be posting the speeches, videos of the speeches. Uh, I was joined by Tom and Jason Robb on the podium, and Debbie also spoke, and... uh, and, of course, Daisy and Henry, who are the leaders of that organization, also spoke. So we had a really great time, and uh, they served chili, Texas chili, very good stuff with cornbread. And, uh, wow, what a fantastic time was had by all. And a lot of great teaching and a lot of young people, about 100 to 125 young people primarily. And uh, their organization, the Aryan Freedom Network, is attracting many, many young people who understand that the international Jew is our worst enemy. And this is unlike the established Christian identity groups that I normally speak to who are 
in many cases, older than I am, <laughs> and, and I'm 76 years old. Yeah, but no, we our Michigan group and our Chicago group has a lot of people who are younger than I am. <laughs> Not much younger. They're in their 40s and 50s primarily. But the Aryan Freedom Network has got guys in their teens and women, 20s and 30s. This is really good that we have so many young people coming into identity through that organization. So let's continue. And uh, I just had a fantastic time, and so did everybody there. But the only thing we didn't do was we didn't do target practice, because that's often part of the agenda when we meet at the Aryan Freedom Network. But the interesting thing, folks, we had a we had an incident. Uh, some Jew uh, had a had a, a remote-controlled helicopter, <laughs> right? And he was spying on us, a drone. All of a sudden, uh, I see out of the corner of my eye, there's a drone, because I was sitting in the corner of the tent. We had to rent a tent because the town hall, which we usually rent for such occasions, at the last minute decided to cancel our event. So it's obvious that uh, air, uh, the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, Antifa group, was aware that we were going to have an event there, and they sabotaged our our commitment from the town to use their hall. So Henry had to rent a a revival tent, which was very fitting, because we have to revive through Christianity, and so they had a revival tent set up, and it was perfect for the number of people that we had, and it was perfect weather. It was eighty five degrees on October. 23rd or 22nd so that was absolutely perfect it was almost too hot and uh, so we had a really good time so we spotted this drone and people looked up and wow hey there's a drone there's a drone and so after we spotted this drone so a couple guys said let's shoot it down well we can't do that 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 would that would wreck the conference that would have the police come in and who knows what else right so we had to just live with it for a while but as it turned out the guy who was operating the drone was in town and he was following our membership around town and they figured out who it was and they figured out that this jew has a website. He's actually the owner of a drone surveillance company. So we figured out who he is, and lawsuit was filed the following Monday. <laughs> okay? So we're going to get some money out of this kike. So he made a big mistake. In fact, uh, he almost there was almost a confrontation between this Jew and some of our members, but they maintained their cool because you don't want to get arrested. You know, the Jew is going to get off and our people are going to get arrested and thrown in jail. So fortunately, cooler heads prevailed and we're going to go the legal route and we're going to sue the bastard. All right. So a wonderful time. Absolutely wonderful time. So this is the kind of excitement you experience when you go to white nationalist slash CI rallies, all right? So, uh, and here we go, back to the article. And so, back to what Untermeyer said here. Those Jews who did not join in, he denounced, declaring they are traitors to their race. So, you can see that the Jews put pressure on the lesser brethren, as the Rothschilds call them, 
to get in step, in lockstep, with the agenda. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey was there. He said he would have helped, but he was across the street. <laughs> so, that was best. It was best that we not engage the enemy at such an occasion. That that time is coming. Engaging the enemy is in our future. That that's for sure. Okay, so let's continue. In January 1934, Mr. Jabotinsky, founder of the revisionist Zionism, wrote in Nacha Retch. Yeah, they're wretches, all right. Quote. The fight against Germany has been carried out for months by every Jewish community, conference, trade organization, by every Jew in the world. We shall let loose a spiritual and a material war of the whole world against Germany, unquote. Now, we have to remember that the Weimar Republic was a Jewish communist onslaught against Germany. An absolute onslaught, cultural debauchery on an unbelievable scale. And the starvation and uh, attacks on the German people while the Jews thrived. Why? Well, because they're always supported by the international bankers. And so they can thrive in the worst of conditions when uh, German, the Germans around them are starving, ha- jobless. The money was uh, was debauched to the extent that you had to have a million marks to buy a loaf of bread, etc., etc. And this was a war against Germany started by the Jew Bolsheviks. So the German people were simply defending themselves against the Weimar nonsense that was going on, and they had every right to do so. And Hitler understood what was happening, because he was a soldier in World War I, and it was the World War I soldiers who reorganized and overthrew the putsch that was being done by the international Jew, headed by Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. These were the two Jews who tried to overthrow Germany at the same time that the Bolsheviks were overthrowing Russia. So Germany was able to fight it off thanks to the military veterans of World War I. If it hadn't been for them, the Bolsheviks would have taken over Germany as well. So, we can see, and all you know, the rest is history. We know that Hitler tried to warn the German people of the Jewish threat, as we in identity are trying to warn the world today of the Jewish threat. And we have to get back to our roots, which are our biblical Israelite roots. And if we don't, we have to have a revival here in America of true Christianity, which is the white racialist movement called Christian identity. And if we don't, we're in big trouble. Because the same movement started America in the first place. It was a white Christian revival, is what it was. And we have to restore that. Uh, And last night I was reading from Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones, where our people have to regain their flesh, blood, their eyes, their lips, etc. to become whole again. And that's what that verse, uh, that whole, the first chapter, first part of chapter 37 of Ezekiel is all about, okay? So I I invite you to read that. That's a really great chapter. It's about us reviving ourselves before the end times, the great awakening of true Israel in these end times. The time is short, folks. The time is very short. All right, let's continue. 
So let, let me do this quote again from Jabotinsky. The fight against Germany has been carried out for months by every Jewish community, conference, trade organization, by every Jew in the world, because the, every Jew is being, you know, well, under threat of, you know, ostracization by the Jewish community, by the upper crust, the Oberjuden, and uh, they will lose their support for, by the Ober, Oberjuden if they don't go play along. We shall let loose a spiritual and a material war of the whole world against Germany. This is perhaps the most confident assertion extant on the Jewish claim set out in the Protocols of Zion that they can bring about war. Yes, they can. Protocol number seven states. I have to scroll down here. We must be in a position to respond to every act of opposition by a state by war with its neighbor. Okay, they can organize wars, as the Rothschilds have done since 1815. And that's the year that Esau took the dominion over from Jacob. And so we've been, this racial holy war, which was declared in Genesis 3, 14, and 15, it will eventually result in the second coming and the total destruction, total annihilation of Edom. So we will look, look very much forward to that day. And continuing with protocol number seven, if these should venture to stand collectively by universal war, okay? So, if the Jews find out that we Americans are unifying against them, then they will sick China upon us. However, and that has been the plan all along, however, China is falling apart economically, they don't have the capacity to make war against America. Although, while I was in Texas, I had word that there was a, a plane load and more than one plane load of communist uh, Chinese soldiers disembarking at the Houston airport. And they were being sent around to various places in Texas. So, they're probably beginning that, you know, because the, the Rothschilds can finance it as long as the Federal Reserve note holds up, holds its value. But the, the value of the Federal Reserve note is collapsing as well. And so that's why they have the central bank, the CBDC, central bank digital currency, ready to take its place. But even that is questionable because as a digital currency, it can be hacked. And if they rush into these things, they will fail. They will fail. We know scripture says all the attempts of our enemy to destroy us will fail. And the remnant, that is us in identity and our allies in the white race, will defeat the kikes. And that's, that's scripture, folks, because they are mystery Babylon in chapter 17, 18, and 19 of the Revelation declares the downfall of Mystery Babylon, which is world Jewry and their banking establishments. Okay? So, it says, back to Ramsey here, it should be remembered here that a copy of these protocols was filed in the British Museum in 1906. Hey, Chris, can you find out if they're still there? <laughs> I'll bet they've been removed. Okay? I'll bet they've been removed because, you know, they always have to destroy the evidence. Oh, yeah, so 
Right, training for training in North Carolina. Now, why would they disembark in Houston? Well, I guess maybe because Houston is a safe space for the international Jew, Fort Bragg, right? So they're gathering, as, as it says in Ezekiel, again, where Mystery Babylon will gather from the four quarters of the earth that's referred to as Gog and Magog in Ezekiel, and assemble an army against us. That's what's happening, folks. Ezekiel chapter 37, 38, and I believe also 36, are being fulfilled before our very eyes. And Yahweh puts it this way, speaking to Gog and Magog, I will put a hook in your jaw and drag you into this conflict. Okay, they landed in El Paso. Very interesting. Very interesting. So the Rothschilds, because they have no choice now, because the world economy is collapsing, and they have to do something before it collapses totally, which means that they have have to act uh, presumptuously and on short notice, and when you do that, you make mistakes. You make big mistakes. We're on the alert. For these unmarked military vehicles, and very often they load them on plane, I mean trains, to spread them out all over the country. So folks, be alert. Be alert. Alright, let's get back to it. I don't want to tell you what to do. You will know what you have to do. Alright, let's continue. So, 1906, British Museum. I'm very curious to find out if they're still there, but I'm almost positive they have been taken out of there. Okay, let's continue. By 1938, the Jewish war was in full swing, and already through their influence or pressure, many so-called Gentile persons and groups were being drawn into the vortex. Various members of the British Socialist Party were openly advocating joining in this Cold War. Wow! Wow! So, well, I mean... The Cold War against the Jews, I would think. And a vigorous and uncompromising clique was growing in all parties under the leadership of Messrs. Churchill, Amory, Duff, Cooper, and others. I would think that the British socialists would have opposed this war. I could be mistaken. They certainly opposed it later. Anyway, quote, Hitler will have no war but he will be forced to it, not this year, but later on, unquote, screamed the Jew Emil Ludwig in the June copy of Le Anile, A-N-I-L-E-S, Le Anile, 1934. On June 3, 1938, matters were carried a long step further by an article in the American Hebrew, the weekly organ of American Jewry, this article, which opened by showing that Hitler never deviated from his Mein Kampf doctrine, went on to threaten the direst retaliation. Quote, again, this is from the American Hebrew. It has become patent that a combination of Britain, France, and Russia will sooner or later bar the triumphant march of Hitler. Of course, Russia was Bolshevik Russia at this point in time will later on bar the triumphant march of Hitler. Either by accident or design, a Jew has come to a position of foremost importance in each of these nations. 
In the hands of non-Aryans lies the fate and the very lives of millions. In France, the Jew of prominence is Leon Blum. Leon Blum may yet be the Moses <laughs> who will lead. Maxim Litvinov, Soviet super salesman, is the Jew who sits at the right hand of Stalin, the little tin soldier of communism. The English Jew of prominence is Leslie Hoare Belisha, Tommy Atkins' new boss. Now, this Jew I've never heard of. Leslie Hoare, H-O-R-E hyphen Belisha, B-E-L-I-S-H-A, Leslie Hoare Belisha, and a great whore of revelation. Tommy Atkins' new boss. I assume Tommy Atkins must have been the equivalent of your Secretary of State over there in Britain. Prime Minister, or some some important, I've never heard of Leslie Hoare (laughs) Belisha. Later on in this article we read, quote, So it may come to pass that these three sons of the Jews of Edom will form the combine that will send the frenzied Nazi dictator to hell. And when the smoke of battle clears and the man who played the swastika Christus is lowered into a hole in the ground as the trio of non-Aryans intone a ramified requiem, a medley of the Marseillaise, God Save the King, and the Internationale, blending with a proud and aggressive rendering of Elili, Elili, or, or Eili, Eili. Again, that's got to be some, uh, some Jewish anthem that I'm not familiar with. Okay, so anyway, it's very obvious that the international Jew had declared economic war against Germany and was preparing for physical war. The fact that World War II was orchestrated by the international Jew is something that our people need to be aware of. They're not aware of this. They're told that Hitler was the aggressor and that he was going to rule the world. Right? Isn't that what all our people are told by the Jewish-controlled kike media? Two points in the above extract are worthy of special note. Firstly, it is taken for granted that these three Jews will not for one moment think or act as anything but Jews and can be relied upon to guide their non-Jewish, their goy dupes, to ruin in a plainly Jewish war. Secondly, should be noted that the contemptuous reference to the swastika Christus, which Jewry looks forward to burying, and which reveals by its classification the Jewish hatred of Christianity. Very good. Thank you, Mr. Ramsey. So, this uh, this is very important history that is you know, probably found, at least not put together so well into one book, The Nameless War. Very, very difficult to find information like this, even on the Internet. You have to go through sources other than Google and uh, you know the, the major the major sources of you know, referencing uh, searches that you have to get a, a different search engine to find this stuff because they they routinely delete this type of, type of information of course those are all Jewish controlled 
So it's really up to us to search deeply to find this kind of information. That's why this book is so valuable. It has references that you can't find anywhere else. So let's continue with this fine, fine article. Hold on. Give me one second here. Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. Let's continue. Meantime, Jewish pressure was exerted to the utmost to incite clashes between Sudeten, Czechs, Poles, and Germans. Well, guess what? What do you think is happening in Ukraine, folks? Orchestrating clashes between Russia and Germany? NATO and Russia? Who else is going to be dragged into this war? Are they preparing? For World War Three, it sure looks like it, folks. They don't need to declare it. It's already begun. They don't need to declare it. In fact, they'd be better off not declaring it because too many people are catching on to their tactics. And the, the more they declare, if they actually declare war, that would be stupid of them. All right? They're already in control of all the military in the world. That includes Iran and North Korea, because all those countries rely on the international banking cartels. Now, but as these cartels collapse, then their coterie of sycophantic nations, and that includes most of the Arab nations too, because all of their sheiks are on the Rothschild payroll, and most of these sheiks aren't even Muslims, (laughs) right? They're nominal Muslims, just as our leaders are nominal Christians and nominal patriots. I like to call them rhinos and rhinocrats, right? The, The Republicans are rhinos and the Democrats are communists, so together they're rhinocrats. America is run by the rhinocratic party. So, We're seeing that this type of orchestration is happening right now. Only those of us in identity and some nationalists are beginning to see the light here. Let's continue. By September of 1938, matters had reached a desperate pass. Mr. Chamberlain himself flew out to Munich and achieved the historic settlement with Hitler. It seemed as though the warmongers had been frustrated and Europe saved. Rarely had such scenes and evidence of spontaneous delight and thankfulness been evoked as were witnessed throughout Britain and Europe at that triumph. Well, it was short-lived, of course. And maybe this is why Hitler was so optimistic about some sort of peace with Britain. Let's continue. Those who knew the power of the enemy, however, knew that Mr. Chamberlain's work was certain to be swiftly sabotaged. I remember remarking on the very evening of his return from Munich that within a week every newspaper in this country and the warmongers in Parliament would be attacking Mr. Chamberlain for having secured peace, regardless of the fact that in so doing they were contemptuously flouting the real wishes of the people. This remark was only too true as events proved. Of course, the Jews had total control of the British newspapers and media in those days as they do have total control of not just America's newspapers and media, the world over they control everything. Nowhere was the Jewish fury so obvious, of course, as in Moscow. 
I have before me a leaflet of my own designing put out in October 1938. It runs, quote, Are you aware that Mr. Chamberlain was burnt in effigy in Moscow as soon as it was known that he had secured peace? Showing very clearly who wanted war and who are still ceaselessly working to stir up strife all the world over? The attempt to provoke war over Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia having failed, there remained only the detonator of in the Polish corridor, that monstrosity born of the unholy Versailles conference and denounced by honest men from Marshal Foch and Arthur Henderson from that time onwards. Yes, and the Germans in that corridor were being systematically exterminated by the Freemasons and Jews. That was an area uh, of Germany that was handed over to Poland as part of, you know, oh, well, didn't, didn't Wilson say that every... Every uh, minority of people should have a right to self-determination. Isn't that what? Isn't that what he said? But no, those Germans were forced into Polish territory, and they were being systematically exterminated. At least thirty thousand Germans had been, you know, ruthlessly murdered in the Polish corridor. Okay, you never hear about that in the mainstream press, and even in the mainstream history books. One feature about the Versailles Conference has been kept secret by those who possess the power to keep things from the public or to proclaim things from the housetops. It is this. All important decisions were taken by the Big Four, Britain, France, Italy, and the USA, all ruled by Jews, of course, represented respectively by Mr. Lord George, Mr. Clemenceau, Baron Sonino, and President Wilson. So much is known. What is not known is that the secretary of Mr. Lord George was, Lloyd George, was the Jew Sassoon of Mr. M. Clemenceau, the Jew Mandel Rothschild, now known as Mandel. Baron, oh, was that, <laughs> was that where uh, our Mandel, advisor to President Wilson, came from? Okay, let's continue. Baron Sonino was himself half a Jew. And President Wilson had the Jew Brandeis. The interpreter was another Jew named Manteau, and the military advisor yet another Jew called Kish, K-I-S-H. So, did you read about that in your history books, folks? It is known that Mr. Lloyd George and others were hazy about geography. Oh, it sounds like college students in America who can't even pick out their own state on a map. Where is California? Who knows? Who cares? We're communists. We want to destroy America, so what does geography matter to us? Their Jewish secretaries, however, were on the contrary very much on the spot on such matters. These Jews met at 6 p.m. in the evenings and mapped out the decisions for the following day's conference of the so-called Big Four. The results were disastrous from the point of view of all decent people who hoped for an honorable treaty with terms which, though they might be stringent, would at least be just and thereby secure lasting peace. Well, there was no possibility of the treaty being just because Germany was falsely blamed for starting World War I. They were actually the last nation to get involved. It was caused by the international Jew and because of the fact 
that the Bolshevik attempt to overthrow Germany right after World War I was still in effect during the Paris Peace Conference, Germany was really unrepresented at the Paris Peace Conference. Totally unrepresented. And if it was represented at all, it was represented by Jews, and Bolshevik Jews at that. So let's continue. Foch himself loudly denounced the treaty, declaring that it contained the certain makings of another war, and depreciating in particular, or deprecating in particular, the provision relating to Danzig and the corridor. Arthur Henderson and many public men joined in the denunciation, but all to no avail. Yeah, Jewish money prevailed. From the point of view of men planning another war, however, nothing could have been better than this treaty. All sorts of glaring injustices were ingrained in its text. In addition to the corridor and the position of Danzig, a bastard state was brought into being in which the German Slovaks together forming a majority of the country, were put under the tyrannical control of the Czech minority, an element which had thrown in its slot with the Bolshevik Jews and fought against the Allies in 1918. So this is how the international Jew was able to manipulate all the countries after the war. The design of this state was such geographically that it was styled and correctly styled a dagger pointed at the heart of Germany. It received the outlandish name of Czechoslovakia. The whole of the industrial life from the huge Skoda arsenal downwards was controlled by Jewish banking interests. While we have it on the evidence of Lord Winterton that practically all the land was mortgaged to the Jews from the Hansard of October 1936. Under this messianic domination were enslaved huge sections of populations belonging to other nations, henceforward condemned to be held down by force until some countries should grow strong enough to champion them. And yes, it's absolutely correct that these Eastern European nations, the people of these Eastern European nations, actually welcomed Hitler's army because they knew they had been enslaved by the international Jew. Continuing, this eventuality was, in my opinion, visualized and actually fostered, as we know, by the huge loans to Germany from international banking interests. Let it not be forgotten that while Jewish bankers were pouring money into Germany, which was rebuilding the Wehrmacht on a bigger scale than ever, a colossal campaign for peace and disarmament was launched in this country. I think he's talking about Britain. So here we see it, more evidence of the fact that the international Jew always finances both sides of any war. And in this case, they actually financed the build-up of Germany. Hitler had no choice but to accept this money to defend Germany. And could he have realized that the enemy was on a build-up? Well, he could have foreseen. Actually, he did foresee a fight against Bolshevik Russia. He made a peace deal with Stalin, and then invaded because he knew that <laughs> it was who who stabs the other guy in the back first. That's what the, that peace deal with Ru- Russia was about. And so he made the move. That was a bad move. Anyway, let's continue. This is not, uh, this, this not only succeeded in substantially disarming us, he must be talking about Britain, 
but in creating an atmosphere in which Mr. Baldwin had to admit that he dared not go to a country asking for more armaments, vital though he knew our needs in sea, air, and land forces to be. To anyone who made a study of the personalities and powers behind the so-called peace propaganda, as I did, there can be no doubt as to whence the real drive and finance emanated. To anyone appreciating the attitude of the press at that time, and realizing that had this disarmament propaganda been distasteful to those who influence our publicity services, there would have been there would have blared forth a torrent of invective against our peace balloters, right, because it was phony. There is additional proof that this campaign had the support of international Jewry, as had the rearmament of Germany. But why? The simple will ask. Well, of course, we know that the Jews always pretend to be peacemongers, while secretly they are doing a build-up. Well, they were building up Soviet Russia. They were building up France. And they were secret. well, they were building up America, for sure, right? And they were secretly building up Britain while pretending to be promoting peace. And FDR did the same thing here in America. He pretended, we won't send our boys over into war, just as Wilson promised not to send our boys over into war. When they did, because secretly both are warmongers, publicly peacemongers, but in reality warmongers. When will our people eventually wake up? Yes, and Camp of the Saints, uh, Camp of the Saints is an excellent book also. Thank you, Swamp Fox. All right, let's get back to this outstanding book, The Nameless War by Archibald Ramsay. So let's continue. Well, in, in fact, this, uh, as I said earlier, this policy of publicly promoting peace while secretly promoting war and financing military buildups has been the Rothschild strategy ever since 1815. Let's continue. The answer is fairly simple. If once the purpose behind the Jewish plan is understood, quote, out of the last war we brought the Soviet states of Russia, out of the next war we will bring the Soviet states of Europe, Unquote. had been the pronouncement at a world meeting of communist parties about 1932. To make the next war possible, therefore, the seesaw must be balanced again. And here again, the Jews manipulate our white Israelite nations against each other. One third of the white race was destroyed in World Wars One and Two. Talk about a holocaust. To make the next war possible, therefore, the seesaw must be balanced again. German strength built up, and British strength whittled down. Then the Europeans can fight each other to the death of one and complete exhaustion of the other. What do you think is happening in Ukraine today, folks? Zelensky said, we will fight to the last Ukrainian, and he, being a Jew, meant it. Because they mean to exterminate the Ukrainians. Continuing, a dramatic surprise is in store for both sides. Neither is to be the real winner. The real winner is quite a, a, quite a different army. This army is one that will receive the real attention. For 25 years it will be built up under conditions of the greatest secrecy. 
Its leaders will not show their strength until the conflict is well underway. This is why you never get any news of what the bankers are investing their money in. There's a video out there called All Wars Are Bankers' Wars. Just put that title in your search engine and you will get that video. Not until a critical moment in the war will the European armies be permitted to guess at the existence of the huge factories beyond the Urals or of the colossal proportions of the heavily mechanized hordes which will then commence to roll westwards over Europe under the red flag of Marxism. Yeah, and of course the military buildup here in America was just as huge. All of this financed by Jewish money. So how how is it possible that the American economy was in the throes of the Great Depression suddenly could become another military empire? How did the factories producing armaments get rolling again during the midst of the Great Depression? Very simple, folks. The Jews started spending their money, (laughs) right? The Depression was caused by the Jews taking money out of uh, out of circulation. And they did that for the purpose, of, I think they actually did it for the purpose of using that land that they deprived the American farmer of because that destroyed the economy for the American farmer. And the, the Dust Bowl ensued, making all those farmers move to California. And that land in Oklahoma and Missouri and Kansas became cheap. And the Jews bought it all up. And they built factories there and military bases there. It was part of the build-up, folks. Let's continue. In March 1939, a British guarantee to Poland was given by Mr. Chamberlain on the strength of a false report to the effect that a 48-hour ultimatum had been delivered by Germany to the Poles. This report subsequently turned out to be quite untrue. The guarantee had been given, however, and the decision of peace or war was now no longer in British hands. Jewry had the ball at its feet. Can we doubt but that Poland was encouraged to ignore the German note of March, which set forth eminently reasonable suggestions for a peaceful solution to the problem of the corridor? Again, I remind you that 30,000 ethnic Germans had already been exterminated by the Bolsheviks. Hitler had every right to invade the corridor because there was no peaceful solution to it. The Poles had ignored every possible peace initiative thrown at them by Hitler. Continuing. Month after month, no reply was vouchsafed by Poland to the German note. Meanwhile, insult and outrage occurred with suspicious frequency all along the German frontier. Similar to the technique to which the Jews later introduced the British in Palestine. Okay, what's going on in Ukraine today, folks? Are there any peace initiatives coming from Biden and NATO? None! None! And of course, none are coming from Russia either. Because they must have this war. And they must blame World War III on Putin. It's getting ready to explode. However, can the Rothschilds continue to finance such humongous war efforts 
without totally de depreciating the Federal Reserve note, which is still the world reserve currency. But more and more countries are opting out of the Federal Reserve note. Can they manage World War III with more funny money? I don't think so, folks. I think it's going to collapse, and the funding for World War III will fall apart. But we'll see what happens. Let's continue. Month after month, no reply was vouchsafed by Poland to the German note. Meanwhile, insult and outrage occurred with suspicious frequency all along the German frontier. Well, insult and outrage are occurring along the front line between Russia and Ukraine. NATO is building up. It's, well, they can't be accused of being warmongers because they're a peace organization, aren't they? <laughs> right? Okay. So, again, pretense of peace and, and financing war. And that's what the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline was all about. Putting Germany in a position where they're trying to force Germany to fight against Russia. That's what that's all about, folks. But let's continue. Similar to the technique to which the Jews later introduced the British in Palestine. Yes, Palestine. All right, constant turmoil instigated by Jews against the Palestinian people, forcing the British mandate. Anyway, day after day, the British public was deluged with war propaganda and misrepresentation of the situation. Finally, their minds were closed against any further regard to the demands of justice or reason by a new slogan. Fake news about Ukraine daily from mass media. Quote, you cannot trust Hitler's word. You cannot trust Putin. The same type of propaganda all over again. With this lie, the British public was finally stampeded into throwing all reason and judgment to the winds and accepting at their face value the war propaganda in the press. To the extent that People here in America are flying the Ukrainian flag, a country they never even heard of <laughs> before this instigated war, and yet another phony war. This slogan was founded upon the misrepresentation of Hitler's assurance given on more than one occasion after a putsch such as that into Sudetenland and that he intended to make no further demands, unquote. Well, okay, so... This note was fake news. Hitler had no choice but to invade the, the, the corridor because Germans were still being slaughtered there. The misrepresentation lay in the fact that the press steadily obscured the major fact that the so-called demands to which Hitler referred were all along fivefold in character and covered those five areas taken from Germany by a dictated peace in which the population was overwhelmingly German, i.e. Sudetenland, part of Czechoslovakia, parts of Poland, the Corridor, and Danzig. Well, don't we have the same kind of orchestrated ethnic war in the Donbass? Those two states which were given to Ukraine by Khrushchev. Was that part of a future 
war scenario? I'll bet. I'll bet it was. So we have a very similar ethnic struggle occurring in Ukraine as we're describing here previous to World War II. Folks, the Jews planned these wars well in advance. Well in advance. Let's continue. As German troops occupied each successive section, it is, I believe, accurate to say that Hitler declared that he had no additional demands to make. But here it must be clearly stated in the interest of justice that he never said that this entailed reducing the demands, which he had originally very clearly delineated, and repeated on many occasions, namely the five areas in question. Yeah, those areas were taken forcibly from Germany by the so-called peace treaty, by the international Jew. And those Germans were being oppressed in those areas. Continuing, the British public was deluded by its press into supposing that when Hitler said he had no further demands, that there had never been any statement of his full demands, some of which were still unfulfilled. They were led to believe that Hitler either never had any other demands or that he had abandoned the rest as soon as he had obtained some of them, thus making him out to be a liar. When, therefore, the next installment was added, the press built on this misunderstanding the fallacy that Hitler's word could not be trusted. Honest dealing needs no such trickery and deception. Such methods are only necessary to bolster up bad or unjust causes. Yeah, fake news. Fortunately, we have the calm and dispassionate judgment in this matter by no less a person than the late Lord Lothian, recently British ambassador to the USA. In his last speech at Chatham House on this subject, he remarked, quote, If the principle of self-determination had been applied in Germany's favor, as it was applied against her, it would have meant the return of Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia, parts of Poland, the Polish quarter, and Danzig to the Reich, unquote. Yes, that was a lie too. I believe that Wilson actually, when he went to the Paris Peace Conference, fully intended to fulfill his word that ethnic nations deserve their own nations, ethnic groups deserve their own nation. But the Jew outvoted him. There was nothing he could do because the Jews were in control of that entire conference. Let's continue. Here is a very different presentment of the case to the one which was foisted upon the British public in 1939. And it is the true one. Small wonder that these facts had to be withheld from the ordinary citizen. And thanks to the Internet, we can find out the truth that this war in Ukraine is being totally staged by the international Jew, and Putin is made out to be the boogeyman, just as Hitler was in 1939, folks. Are we going to fall for this tactic again? Or is the country called Germany going to resist another falling into another world war? We know that the Germans do not want another war that the European people do not want another war. But NATO 
is pushing them into this war. Why? Because NATO is controlled by the Rothschilds. The European Union is controlled by the Rothschilds. The United Nations is the Rothschilds. Is the leadership of these countries going to falter and fall in line with the Rothschilds yet again? Or will there be resistance to the growing sentiment that we need another world war? This is the paramount question. Will the white race fall into battling it out amongst themselves yet again? Whatever is the case, we know that this will be the final battle. The final battle. Can the Rothschilds orchestrate this World War III to their own advantage? Will they be able to do it? I hope not. I pray not. Let's continue. Had the British public realized the truth that each of these demands of Hitler's rested on a foundation of reasonable fairness, the people of this island would have ruled out any question of war. And it was war, not truth or justice, upon which the international Jewry was resolved. Chapter 7 Phony War Ended by Civilian Bombing Though a state of war was declared to exist between Britain and Germany in September of 1939, it very soon became apparent that no war was being conducted by Germany against this country. This was no surprise to those who knew the facts of the case. Hitler had again and again made it clear that he never intended to attack or harm Great Britain or the British Empire. With the Siegfried Line strongly held, and no German intention of appearing west of it, Stalemate in the West, or the phony war as it came to be called, must, in the absence of bombing of civilian populations, ultimately peter out altogether. No one was quicker to perceive this than the pro-Jewish warmongers, and they and their friends inside and outside the House of Commons very soon began exerting pressure for this form of bombing of Germany to be started. On 14th January 1940, the Sunday Times gave pro- prominence to a letter from an anonymous correspondent who demanded to know why we were not using our air power to, quote, increase the effect of the blockade, unquote. Scrutator, this is a pen name, S-C-R-U-T-A-T-O-R, Scrutator, in the same issue commented on this letter as follows, quote, such an extension of the offensive would inevitably develop into competitive frightfulness. It might be forced on us in reprisals for enemy action, and we must be in a position to make reprisals if necessary. But the bombing of industrial towns, with its unavoidable loss of life among the civilian population, that is what it would come to, would be inconsistent with the spirit, if not the actual words, of the pledges given from both sides at the beginning of the war, unquote. Thus spake Scrutator. The above quotation was taken from a book entitled Bombing Vindicated, which was published in 1944 by Mr. J. M. Spate, who was the Principal Assistant Secretary at the Air Ministry during the war. As its title suggests, this book is an attempt to justify the indiscriminate use of bombers against the civilian population. In it, 
Mr. Spate boasts that this form of bombing saved civilization. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, you can believe that. But all the American people ever heard about was the Blitzkrieg by Hitler, which was a retaliation against civilian bombing by the British folks and reveals the startling fact that it was Britain that started this ruthless form of war on the very evening of the day on which Mr. Churchill became Prime Minister, May 11, 1940. So we know that Hitler, I mean, sorry, Churchill, was an avowed Zionist. He was an avowed Zionist, and he was doing the will of the Jews. On page 64 of his book, Mr. Spate gives a further piece of information which renders this sudden change of British policy all the more astonishing. For he states that a declaration was made by the British and French governments on 2nd September 1939 that, quote, only strictly military objectives in the narrowest sense of the word would be bombarded, unquote. Okay, the world still believes Jewish lies. As long as they hire Goyim to pronounce the lies, the world is unaware that these are Jewish lies. This declaration, of course, was made in the days of Mr. Chamberlain's premiership, and no single fact perhaps could demarcate and differentiate more clearly the difference in the character and behavior between Mr. Chamberlain and Mr. Churchill. Of course, Mr. Churchill had a Jewish-American mother by the name of Jenny... Oh, what was her last name? Not Jones. <laughs> I think Jenny Jones was a TV personality that had a talk show. Uh, somebody in the chat room, refresh my memory. Jenny something or other. Anyway, on the 27th of January, 1940, 13 days... Oh, Jacobson. It's either Jacobs or Jacobson. On the 27th of January, 1940, 13 days after the letter in the Sunday Times already quoted, the Daily Mail endorsed editorially the views which had been expressed in that issue by Scrutador, and it devoted a leading article, writes Mr. Spate, to combating the suggestion of Mr. Amory and others that we should start the bombing of Germany. Sir Duff Cooper had written on the previous day in the same paper that there would appear to exist a kind of unwritten truce between the two belligerents, according to the tacit terms of which they do not bomb one another, unquote. How did all this change? Yeah, Jenny Jerome, thank you. Jenny Jerome was her name. And thank you, Sussex Man. So, again, we're setting history straight here, folks, including getting the names right. Okay. So, this is in absolutely incredible. And the American public is absolutely, and for the white race at large, is unaware of this Jewish treachery behind the scenes. There's always Jewish treachery behind the scenes, further proving that the prophecy made by Isaac to Esau he refused to bless Esau, but he told him, there will come a day when you, Esau, will have the dominion over Jacob. That began right after the Napoleonic Wars and has continued throughout 
by the Jews promoting warfare between and among the Israelite nations of the world, thus reducing our numbers one-third of the white race destroyed in these first two world wars. Folks, it's not getting any better. In view of the declaration by Britain and France of September 2, 1939, that they would, quote, only bomb military objectives in the narrowest sense of the word, unquote, Sir Duff Cooper's verbiage about, quote, a kind of unwritten truce, unquote, seems to me gravely obscurantist, if honest at all. Inside the House of Commons, the pro-Jewish warmongers were now becoming more and more intransigent and more and more set on sabotaging the chances of turning the phony war into a negotiated peace. This in spite of the fact that Britain had nothing to gain by further and total war, and everything to lose. Well, I mean, just as World War I was about maintaining British-Jewish hegemony over commerce, worldwide commerce, the British had the same motivation in World War II. Continuing, the Jews, of course, had everything to lose by a peace which left the German gold-free money system and Jew-free government intact and nothing to gain. Well, the Jews had everything to gain from war with Germany. That is the destruction of Germany. <coughs> Excuse me. Need to wet my whistle here. And a frog in my throat trying to come out. Here we go. It seemed clear to me every day that this struggle over the question of civilian bombing was the crux of the whole matter. Yeah, and blame it on, <coughs> blame it on Germany. And that by this method of warfare alone could the Jews and their allies cut the Gordian knot of stalemate leading to peace, and probably later on to a joint attack on Jewish Bolshevism in Russia. Yeah, and FDR was doing his best to protect the Jewish Bolshevik country. So, and this is why, again, the phony, the big lie by FDR that that uh, that the uh, attack on on Hawaii was an overt act of aggression by the Japanese when he had intelligence a week ahead of time that they were getting ready to attack. He needed to have an overt you know, uh, act of violence to blame the Japanese on, and he sacrificed the lives of all of those people in Hawaii by not informing them of the impending attack. Now here again, our, our so-called leaders have been staging these terrorist attacks for publicity purposes to gain the sympathy of the American people, just like all of these attacks in our schools. All of these school shootings, the post office school shootings, etc., blamed on white nationalists to paint us in a horrible light, while the Jews are actually responsible for all of these terrorist attacks on, on, our, on our soil and on international soil as well. Accordingly, on 15th February 1940, I put down the following question to the Prime Minister. Captain Ramsey asked the Prime Minister, quote, whether he will assure the House that His Majesty's government will not assent to the suggestion made to them that 
to abandon those principles which led them to denounce the bombing of civilian populations in Spain and elsewhere and embark upon such a policy themselves, unquote. Mr. Chamberlain himself replied in outspoken terms, I am unaware of the suggestions to which my honorable and gallant friend refers. The policy of His Majesty's government in this matter was fully stated by myself in answer to a question by the honorable member of the, for Bishop Auckland, Mr. Dalton, on 14th September last. In the course of that answer I said that whatever be the length to which others may go, His Majesty's government will never resort to the deliberate attack on women and children and other civilians for the purpose of mere terrorism. And that's what it was, folks. I have nothing to add to that answer, unquote. But that was while Mr. Chamberlain was Prime Minister. He was summarily removed and replaced with Churchill. Both this question and the reply were evidently distasteful in the extreme to the warmongers. So I resolved to carry the matter a stage further. On 21st February, I put down another question on the subject, quote, Captain Ramsay asked the Prime Minister, quote, whether he is aware that the Soviet aeroplanes are carrying on a campaign of bombing civilian populations, and whether His Majesty's government have dispatched protests on the subject similar to those dispatched during the Civil War in Spain in similar circumstances, unquote. So, Mr. Ramsey is directly involved in the politics of the day, so he ought to know what was really going on. Further from Mr. Ramsey's questioning, while as while a, a member of His Majesty's government, Mr. Butler replied for the Prime Minister, quote, Yes, sir, the Soviet air forces have pursued a policy of indiscriminate bombing which cannot be too strongly condemned. His Majesty's government have not, however, lodged any protest since they are unfortunately, there are unfortunately no grounds for supposing that such action would achieve the result desired, unquote. Okay, so silence in the face of these atrocities is golden or is it wretched? Again, the Jews are in control of mass media. There can be little doubt about that. These two downright answers crystallized the resolves of the warmongers to get rid of a prime minister whose adherence to an upright and humane policy must inevitably frustrate their plans, seeing that Hitler wished no war with Britain and would therefore never start civilian bombing himself. Referring to Mr. Chamberlain. The machinery of intrigue and rebellion against Mr. Chamberlain was set in motion. Ultimately, he was saddled with the blame for the Norway blunder, and this pretext was used by the Churchillian cum socialist, <laughs> should have, I almost said scum, the Churchillian scum socialist caucus to secure his downfall. It should be remembered in this connection that prior to and during the Norway gamble, Mr. Churchill had been invested with full powers and responsibilities for all naval, military, and air operations, and if anyone therefore deserved to be broken over the second Gallipoli, pursued in defiance of high naval authority, warning that without control of the Kattegat and 
Skagarak, it could not possibly succeed. It should have been the minister responsible. So I'm not aware of the situation in Norway, so I'm unable to comment about that. So it looks like another staged conflict on which Germany was to be blamed. But let's continue. He, however, was not only unbroken, he was acclaimed prime minister. The man who would tear up the British pledge of September 2, 1939, and start bombing the civilians of Germany was the man for the warmongers who now ruled the roost. And so, guess what? We've got a warmonger here by the name of Joe Biden. He, however, was not only unbroken, but he was acclaimed Prime Minister, the man who would tear up the British pledge on September 2, 1939, and start bombing the civilians of Germany, was the man for the warmongers now, who now ruled the Rus'. So, didn't Joe Biden declare that we would bomb the Nord Stream pipeline? Isn't he the one who said that? And so civilian bombing started on the evening of the, that the architect of the Norwegian fiasco became prime minister, namely May 11th, 1940. Mark that date well, folks. May 11th, 1940. That scumbag Churchill came to power then. All right, and he was obviously put in power to declare war, and so was FDR. That's why FDR was certainly re-elected. And FDR's administration was totally filled with Jew communists. Absolutely filled with Jew communists. Chapter 8, Dunkirk and After. Now, I didn't see the movie Dunkirk, but I'm sure it was not true to the fact that Hitler actually called back his army. He could have annihilated the British military at Dunkirk, but he didn't. Let's get into it. Captain Liddell Hart, the eminent military critic, wrote a book on the military events of 1939 to 1945, which was published in 1948 and entitled The Other Side of the Hill. Chapter 10, which deals with the German invasion of France down to and including Dunkirk, bears the somewhat startling title, quote, how Hitler beat France and saved Britain. <laughs> the reading of the chapter itself will astound all propaganda-blinded people, even more than the title. For the author therein proves that not only did Hitler save this country, but that this was not the result of some unforeseen factor or indecision or folly, but was a, a, of a set purpose, based on his long enunciated and faithfully maintained principle having given details of how Hitler peremptorily halted the Panzer Corps on the 22nd May and kept them inactive for the vital few days till, in fact, the British troops had got away from Dunkirk, Captain Liddell Hart quotes Hitler's telegram to von Kleist, quote, The armored divisions are to remain at medium artillery range from Dunkirk. Permission is only granted for reconnaissance and protective Movements protect who? The British? Von Kleist decided to ignore the order, the author tells us. To quote him again, quote, 
Then came a more emphatic order that I was to withdraw behind the canal. My tanks were kept halted there for three days, unquote. In the following words, the author reports a conversation which took place on May 24th, two days later, between Herr Hitler and Marshal von Rundstedt and two key men of his staff. All right, before I even read this, what was the timing of these orders by Hitler? Had the civilian bombing by Churchill already begun? Or did Churchill wait until after Dunkirk? Maybe someone in the chat room knows the answer to this question. That would be a very important... Oh yeah, yeah Paul Eric says, allowing the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor also caused public resentment. Okay? The pretense that we were surprise attacked. <laughs> right? The pretense that it was a surprise attack galvanized American opinion against Japan. And I think that the Churchill fiasco in Norway was calculated to have the same effect. Okay. So, folks, this is good stuff. You can't get better history than this. Let's continue. So, if somebody could answer that question, uh, I would appreciate it. Did, did, was Hitler's decision to withhold the attack on Dunkirk before or after the, the attack, uh, bombing of civilian targets by Churchill? Because if that was the case, if, if the civilian bombing by Churchill had already begun, then this was an extreme blunder by, by Hitler. But let's continue. So here, let me re- get this quotation set up again here. In the following words, the author reports a conversation which took place on May 24th, two days later, between Herr Hitler and Marshal von Rundstedt and two key men of his staff. Quote, He, that is Hitler, then astonished us by speaking with admiration of the British Empire of the necessity for its existence and of the civilization that Britain had brought into the world. He compared the British Empire with the Catholic Church, saying they were both essential elements of stability in the world. He said that all he wanted from Britain was that she should acknowledge Germany's position on the continent. The return of Germany's lost colonies would be desirable, but not essential, and he would even offer to support Britain with troops if she should be involved in any difficulties anywhere. He concluded by saying that his aim was to make peace with Britain on a basis that she would regard compatible with her honor to accept. As I concluded last week's show with these similar words, was Hitler unaware that the, that the British Empire was totally controlled by Rothschild? Was he unaware of that? Let's continue. Captain Liddell Hart comments on the above as follows. Quote, If the British army had been captured at Dunkirk, the British people might have felt that their honor had suffered a stain which they must wipe out. By letting it escape, Hitler hoped to conciliate them, unquote. 
This conviction of Hitler's deeper motive, he continues, was confirmed by his strangely dilatory attitude over the subsequent, that dilatory meaning delay tactics, over the subsequent plans for the invasion of England. He showed little interest in the plans, Blumentritt said, and made no effort to speed up the preparation. That was utterly different to his unusual behavior. Before the invasion of Poland, of France, and later of Russia, he repeatedly spurred them on. But on this occasion, he sat back. The author continues, quote, Since the account of his conversation at Charleville and subsequent holding back comes from a section of the generals who had long distrusted Hitler's policy that makes their testimony all the more notable. And later he goes on to say, quote, Significantly, their account of Hitler's thoughts about England at the decisive hour before Dunkirk fits in with much that he himself wrote earlier in Mein Kampf, and it is remarkable how closely he followed his own Bible in other respects. Unquote. Anyone who has read Mein Kampf will immediately appreciate the accuracy of the above statement. It is indeed, if anything, an understatement. Throughout that remarkable book runs two main themes, as I have shown in an earlier chapter. The one, a detailed delineation and denunciation of the Jewish capitalist revolutionary machine. The other, admiration for and eagerness for the friendship with Britain and the Empire. Did Hitler imagine that he could overcome Rothschild's control of Great Britain? After Churchill replaced Chamberlain, I'm sure any delusion on that account should have disappeared from Hitler's mind. Continuing, It is a pity, indeed, that so few persons in this island have read this book for themselves. And it is a tragedy that they have instead swallowed wholesale the unscrupulous distortions and untrue propaganda on the subject, served up to them by Jewish publicity machinery, operating through our press and radio. Let these people but try and obtain a copy of that book. And when they find they cannot, let them reflect that if indeed its contest confirmed the lies that have been told concerning it and its author, the powers behind our publicity would ensure that everyone should be able to secure a copy at the cheapest possible rate. Well, it's freely available online now. In any event, I would urge my countrymen to ponder most earnestly the following facts. The Jew Karl Marx laid it down that Bolshevism could never really succeed until the British Empire had been utterly destroyed. But had already been destroyed. It was being propped up by the American military. It was an ineffective military force without American support, Jewish-American support, I should be clear. Hitler laid it down that the British Empire was an essential element of stability in the world and even declared himself ready to defend it with troops if it should be involved in difficulties anywhere. By unscrupulous propaganda on an unprecedented scale, this country was led into destroying those who wished to be her friends and offered their lives to defend her, and exalting those who proclaimed that her destruction was a necessary preliminary to the success of their ideology, forfeiting her empire and her economic independence in the process. 
end of chapter 8. All right, folks, much to ponder here. Hitler, the biggest mistake he ever made was to not secure victory at Dunkirk. He was subject to this great delusion that by pacifying Britain, they would not attack. So it's very important to find out whether or not the saturation bombing of civilian targets by Churchill, and by the, by the way, the general who started that was a Jew, I forget his name, but that was done by a Jewish general in the British uh, Air Force. So just as Japan was economically surrounded by Jew- the Jewish war machine before World War II, so was Germany, and they pulled out all the stops to destroy those two nations, number one, with economic policy, and number two, finally, with military policy. So I did not realize that the Bolsheviks had already started attacking, uh, whether, whether it was German targets you know, in the uh, occupied you know, territories of the Paris Peace Treaty, so-called Peace Treaty. So I'd have to do uh, research on that because I was not aware that the Soviets were already bombing civilian targets at this point in time. So this book gives us historical details that are left out of all the Orthodox history books, folks. All of them. Harris, that was General Harris. Thank you, Seven. He was a Jew. So we see the Jewish hand in all of this treachery. Treachery, treachery, and more treachery is all we get from Jews. And the people still believe that they're God's chosen people. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Yes, and Paul says they do the same to the Muslim nations. They set them up for a fall. Will the world ever wake up to Jewish treachery? That's the big question, folks. Will the world ever wake up to Jewish treachery? All right, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. Boy, our people had better wake up because they're trying to lead us into another war using Ukraine as the fulcrum. Using Ukraine as the fulcrum. Will Russia actually stymie this orchestrated world war? That's the big question right now. Will Putin be able to stymie the, or this orchestrated war? So, pray about this, folks. We need to get at the bottom of this and tell all your friends and relatives that this is just another repeat of a staged war by the international Jew. We need to put an end to this once and for all. Pray, I pray, Father Yahweh, let our people wake up Open their eyes. Let them understand that all wars are Jewish wars and that never again should the white race, the 12 tribes of Israel especially, fight against one another on behalf of the international Jew, that parasite that muddles our thinking and causes us to fight one another, just like all parasites do. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition, folks. See you next time. Thank you, Mary.